Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we talk about the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about rising tensions in the Ukraine, eastern Ukraine, Hungary pushing for new arrangements between nation states in Europe, and the tedious tightrope walk to peace in Libya. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid-fire news. There was a suicide bombing that has killed two and injured four in Somalia. One of the two that was killed was a soldier in Somalia. A couple magistrates in Italy, specifically a city in Sicily, which is the little island on the southern tip of Italy, looks like a triangle, some magistrates there have charged NGOs, some non-governmental operations, I mean organizations, with aiding in illegal immigration from Libya. Now, in Italy, uh, the migrant situation, the migrant crisis, has been a point of contention between the political entities there. And, well, you're seeing the local level now get involved, where they have this charge levied against the non-governmental organizations, that are aiding in the passage of migrants from North Africa to Italy. And for them, it's a humanitarian effort, and for Italy, it's illegal immigration. So you're seeing the conflict of their interests here. Um, just an interesting thing to note, uh, as we will be talking a bit about Europe later today, but uh, we'll... That'll come a bit later, that'll come a bit later. We have the Polish Prime Minister, who is currently set to ask the country's constitutional court to confirm, uh, probably just to set precedent here, he wants to ask them to confirm that Poland's constitution is above EU law. Now that is something that we'll also be kind of talking about later on, not that specifically, but the direction that member states in Europe are heading in when we talk about a specific country in Central Europe that we have talked about before, one that I believe is going to be a great power in the mid-century, or at the very least a rising power. We'll be talking about that country later on, but uh, while we're still on the topic of Europe, a Lithuanian minister... Well, a couple of them, actually, are moving forward to try to establish friendly relations with Taiwan at a time when the EU itself is looking to improve relations with China. And that's the mainland China, not Taiwan. So all of these are going to be... are stories that I came across that I figured uh, weren't big enough to warrant a segment on their own, but, interestingly enough, are going to play into... Uh, the bigger segment in the meat that I have coming up. And it'll all come together soon. Meanwhile, a Pakistani prime minister, uh, he has remained in power. Uh, His name is Imran Khan, if I'm not mistaken. 
He's remained in power after a narrow vote of confidence from, well, their governmental body. Uh, so that's good for him, especially at a time when a whole bunch of leaders around the world have been getting ousted over their handling of the coronavirus, which really just means for locking people down for months on end and refusing to let them go back to work. So there's that. No. And to Pakistan's northeast, we have China, who is currently building a passageway to South Asia. Another one. Uh, and it's added that, the construction of that passageway, to their 14th, 5th year plan. I mean, 5 year plan, their 14th. 5 year plan. Oh, excuse me. It's a bit early here. Uh, so they're going to build, they want to build a passageway to South Asia as a part of their five-year plan. And I have in my notes right here that India is likely not going to be appreciative. And I said another one because technically the Belt and Road Initiative, where China's building a, uh, China has commissioned a railway to be built in Pakistan, that the Pakistanis are largely the ones building. And it's going to run from their border straight down to the coastline along the end, which is, uh, well, Pakistan's a bit of a narrow country, so effectively you're going to have a corridor of development, supposedly, along this line of modernized infrastructure that's going to go straight from the mountains of Kashmir up north and down to their, well, their coast, probably a major port city as well. So there's that. That's the corridor slash passageway to South Asia that's already being built. So that the fact that they're adding this onto their five-year plan probably implies that they want a new one. Um, well, actually, it doesn't imply they do want a new one because they were talking about moving through Tibet. Um, and maybe they're just going to move through Tibet to get to Kashmir, which is in the northwest part of India and the northeast part of Pakistan, um, maybe they're just talking about using Tibet to get to that region over there, and they're really talking about Pakistan, but I don't know, maybe, maybe they're talking about someone else, maybe, maybe they're gonna try to get a passageway through Burma, although I don't see why they would need Tibet for that, so, in all likelihood, they're probably talking about Pakistan, because I don't, expect that India is going to be very happy about that, or maybe they're going to build a railway through Nepal or Bhutan, because technically that would be a passageway to South Asia that would conveniently allow them to move very quickly to India. Hmm. Cold War, Cold War, think Cold War. I'd imagine India is going to be attempting, or at the very least deliberating, on countermeasures and counter moves to make in light of this. Don't know exactly what they could do, given that the countries on their periphery are already sided with China largely, but maybe they'll do something that isn't nothing. But that being said, we're going to move on now to a country to the east of China, and that is South Korea. Now, they have agreed to pay more to help cover the cost of the 28,000 U.S. troops stationed in the country. Now... Just another opportunity for me to preach the glories of isolationism, but uh, I did that in the last episode, so I'll just leave leave that on the table, okay? Um, So there's that. 
which is something that Trump advocated for, but uh, now they're doing this. So I guess, I guess we'll take what we can get. And the Pope has recently visited Iraq and hasn't been shot. <laughs> now, to those who don't know, Iraq is, I believe, Shia Muslim, or at the very least, they're governed by Shia Muslims right now. They could be a largely ethnic Sunni majority, but they're governed by Shias, kind of like in Syria and Lebanon, I believe. Uh, and Lebanon's a bit of a touchy thing on who exactly is governing, given they're in the midst of a very, very, very complex and complicated civil war. Um, so there's that. But the fact that he was able to go here and he hasn't, again, he hasn't been shot, uh, is pretty amazing, you know, pretty amazing. And it's probably a major, well, it, it, it was a major visit because it's the Pope and he's visiting a tradition, a region of the world that is hostile to Christianity. Um, the fact that he was even allowed to go to Iraq is in and of itself monumental. But maybe it could be a sign that good things for the Middle East could be ahead. And I say good, relatively speaking, because it's the Middle East. But maybe, just maybe, we might see uh, something special. I'll, I'll, I'll say something special. I don't you don't want to get people's hopes up about peace in the Middle East. The Middle East is hell-bent on shooting each other. But maybe they're so focused on shooting at each other that they don't want to shoot at the Christians. We'll have to see how this plays out. But it was monumental and is a very interesting story to look at. Now, we have in Burma an update on that. 54 people have been reportedly killed since the Burmese military took control of the country. Um, this has been a major point of contention um, for many countries around the world, namely the U.S. <laughs> the Burmese military, for those who don't know, uh, has accused the people who won the election of committing voter fraud and election fraud, and they put them in jail. They put the leader in jail, and they took control of the government. So you have lots of other democracies and demo and republics around the world uh, kind of sort of condemning this. Um, and, you know, Amer it's kind of a touchy subject for America. Because uh, um, eerily similar. <laughs> who, who said that? What? But uh, anyway, there's a vaccine passport has been approved. Oh my god, I didn't finish my note. I believe that's Israel, though. I believe it's Israel that they approved of a vaccine passport system. So, we'll have to see how that plays out, because there was major talk about that during 2020. And so, this is kind of one of the first instances of it. There's talk about it in Britain, I believe, right now. We'll see where they move, because they're kind of... They, it seems like they don't quite know where they want to go with this, or at least their government doesn't. They don't know whether they want more or less lockdowns. Uh, the French are, are literally gyrating between opening up and locking back down. And we saw way back in uh, 2020 when they went for their second lockdown, you saw this mass exodus from Paris, and it was clogging up the highways for miles. 
It was ridiculous. But, moving on to other countries, we have Russia and Belarus who are going to hold joint military exercises later this month. I believe these these exercises are routine. However, the time at which they're taking place comes... Well, it comes at a time when Belarus is under heavy scrutiny from major other European powers and the U.S. over what happened in its elections. Um, and they accuse him of cheating. Very, very... <laughs> I would say we don't necessarily have room to talk on that subject. But um, they accuse him of cheating. You combine this with the Navalny scandal in Russia... That has basically made the Russians go commit to going their separate ways from Western Europe and Western countries in particular. They've effectively committed now to going their own way. They were kind of trying to be cordial and trying to maintain some relations. Now they're seemingly just over it with the Navalny thing. They've thrown him in jail and they're going to leave him there to rot. <laughs> And Belarus is under scrutiny as well due to that election where uh, Lukashenko won. Or maybe he didn't win and he actually did cheat. Elections, elections, how touchy and fragile they are. We talked about that a couple episodes back as well. But uh, Belarus is kind of isolated right now with the sole exception of their relationship with Russia. Which means that the only way they can go right now is in straight into the arms of Russia. And the European countries and Western countries who wanted Belarus to kind of come into the fold of of Western nation. Or at the very least kind of join in with the rest of Europe. Are partially to blame for that. You know, they accused him of cheating his election. And then accused him of violently suppressing the protests that broke out after the election and they've effectively severed their ties with Belarus through those actions now Belarus is isolated and has nowhere to go but to Russia and I'm sure the Russians are more than happy about this you know anything all's well that ends well for me so I'd imagine Russia is going to kind of press on this advantage or maybe they'll do so in the future um because it's seeming like all the stars are just lining up for russia all right that that's what it seems like they were able to swoop into the caucuses uh last year and now they have de facto control over it and they even managed to kick out turkey they kicked out turkey and all its mercenaries and it put quote-unquote peacekeepers in their place russia has de facto control over the caucuses and after the war ended i said that they would either go after the ukraine or they would go for central asia and my personal thought i think i mentioned this my personal thought was that they would go for ukraine because they already have like a skirmish in eastern ukraine that they could just finish up maybe i mentioned that maybe i didn't I'll just assume that I didn't, but um, now we're kind of seeing the opportunity for that right now. So, and we'll actually get into that in just a minute, actually, just a minute. Uh, the UN, and this is the final piece, we're going to close out the 
rapid fire news here the un has sent an advance observation team uh, amid the it's advance of the other teams that they're going to be sending into libya this is the advance team uh, sending in there to oversee the ceasefire that's been brokered and to verify the departure of the foreign mercenaries that were fighting in the country and those are probably turkey's mercenaries <laughs> Uh, and how long that they'll remain out of the country remains to be seen. Or maybe they'll just be replaced with Turkish peacekeepers uh, should this whole thing blow up. But we'll be talking about Libya later on. Uh, but for now, we're going to talk Eastern Ukraine. We're going to get into the meat now. We're going to talk Eastern Ukraine. And my question is, is it heating up? Now, Dmitry Peskov, he's a Russian minister... I believe of foreign affairs. He has said that Russia is seriously concerned about a rise in violence on the contact line between the rebels, which is in Donbass and Luhansk regions of eastern Ukraine, the parts of Ukraine that are conveniently located, snuggled up against the Russian border. Uh, the, he has expressed that Russia is concerned about a rise in violence on the contact line, which is kind of where the two sides, their zones of control meet, between the rebels and the Ukrainian government forces, so the official Ukrainian military. Now, the Ukraine obviously blames Russia for this. <laughs> they have accused Russia of obstructing prisoner exchanges, uh, the new the new ones that they were supposed to be doing. And they've accused Russia of obstructing troop withdrawals from the conflict. And the Ukraine has also accused Russia of inciting the conflict and spawning it in the first place. And to that, I would say that they are most definitely right. They were definitely right about that one. Russia doesn't necessarily have room to talk on that, considering the at the same time, they straight up annexed the Crimea from the Ukraine. So, there's that. But, uh, of course, Russia itself has denied all accusations from the Ukraine and instead blames the problem on the Ukrainians. Don't you just love geopolitics, people? <laughs> but, my question now, or the question... No, 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 it's my question, it's my question. I was going to say the question other people are asking, but no, it's mine. Could we be seeing the justification for escalation of this conflict on both sides? Uh, potentially leading to a final showdown between the two. We're seeing Ukraine accuse Russia of not holding, of not living up to their promises on withdrawal and de-escalation. And Russia's accusing Ukraine of being the root cause of all evil. But with the two sides uh, at odds, more so now, because there's actual, like, more fighting right now. Um, the fighting itself has been largely sporadic since the onset of war, almost, what, half a decade ago? Wow. Um, it's been kind of on and off fighting. There was major fighting at first, and then it got bogged down. Um... Uh, it would, we could be seeing right now a uh, justification for escalation and that could be a reignition of the conflict and that could put an end to the st 
static trench warfare that the two sides have been engaged in since the tedious ceasefire was agreed to. And I say agreed with quotations marks because there was still shooting across the the contact line. It's just the shooting was not as aggressively, well, not as aggressively as they could have been. But um, there's that. And I do want to stress that the Russians are, well, while they do have forces there, it's kind of more of a Ukrainian civil war here, where you have Eastern Ukraine, the Eastern half of Ukraine is traditionally pro-Russia, and the Western half of Ukraine is traditionally more independent, and you have this, this part of the country in the furthest eastmost section of the country that has rebelled. And you have the Russians sending in forces to aid them, but they kind of supposedly left the Russian army right before doing so. And they lost a couple hundred men. And then their S-300s at the time, maybe S-400, accidentally shot down the Ukrainian Air Force. So now the Ukraine has effectively no Air Force. And which leads me to believe that realistically, the only way this ends is dependent entirely on what Russia decides to do. Again, we're, we could be seeing the escalation to the final showdown here and a wrapping up of this conflict that has been raging in eastern Ukraine. And if it becomes a war movement again, we could see the battle lines actually start to move and, well... I have outlined that the only way this ends is either Russia decides to walk away and the rebels just get ground down gradually. Um, <laughs> that is hilarious. All right, that, that's, that's not going to happen. Uh, the other option, the more realistic option, in my opinion, is that Russia throws in the reserves they take advantage of their war-weary foe, the Ukraine, because the Ukraine hasn't... It, they're not fighting a proxy war. They, they are the proxy war, and they have to fight. Russia gets... Um, they get deniability. What, uh, what's the term? Ah, oh, I can't remember the term. I just know it. <laughs> deniability. But Russia gets to pretend that they're not in the conflict so they don't necessarily get war-weary of it. Or at the very least, it takes longer for them to get to the point where they say, you know what, maybe we should stop fighting. The Ukraine, it's on their border. It's their country. And they're probably exhausted right now. Uh, there we go. Plausible deniability. Plausible deniability. I definitely didn't pause the recording to look it up. but <laughs> Russia has plausible deniability in this, but the Ukraine since it's on their territory, they don't get that. They have to fight, and they're going to get exhausted from fighting, where the Russians get to reserve their energy for the final fight. And my opinion on the realistic way that this ends is Russia takes advantage of a war-weary and exhausted and depleted Ukraine that is isolated because no one else is really committed to opposition against Russia, not like real opposition, or no one who can actually do anything is committed to real opposition against Russia, 
Russia puts an end to the conflict uh, through the separatists pushing west across the country, taking over the Ukraine in its entirely, becoming the new government of the Ukraine, but they are separatists. They want to be a part of Russia. So what happens then? They hand over the whole of the Ukraine to Russia on a silver platter. That's how I believe this will end. Or maybe they'll just reach a ceasefire and their little section of the Ukraine goes to Russia. And Russia, a couple years later, spawns a new re uh, rebellion in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and they just eat away at it piecemeal. And do the same thing over and over and over again until they win. We could be seeing that. That's the way I believe this is going to end. But we'll have to see if someone wants to help the Ukraine out on this. We'll have to see if the, this escalation actually does lead to the end of the trench warfare there. And a, a return to a war of movement, which I believe the separatists are probably going to be more suited to win. Uh, especially with all that Russian backing that they have. And all the equipment that they've probably just been sitting and stockpiling on since the war began. <clears throat> so, not looking good for the Ukraine. Uh, especially at the time we talked about this last episode when they were kind of divided internally. Where their leader was at odds with their court. And it's the worst possible time to be having these internal divisions and now you're seeing this as this rising escalation of violence on the contact line who knows we don't know when the rebels or the russians are going to make their move or if, we don't know if the ukraine is going to go for some desperate hail mary and then the rebels and the U and russia use that as justification say hey you broke the peace you broke the ceasefire so now the war is on and then Ukraine having lost everything in the Hail Mary, they just get stomped on. I don't know. I just know the Ukraine is seemingly in an unwinnable situation right now. And I have outlined the way I believe this is going to end. And I'll leave that at that. And we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, very interesting things happening in the former Soviet space. But now, we're going to talk... Hungary in just a moment. Alrighty, let's talk Hungary. Now, their Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, is pushing for a rearrangement of the EU. Now, I say this uh, as kind of like my own summary of what he's advocating for, because he said himself in a statement that, quote, there should be a political home in Europe for our type of people, those who want to protect families, to defend their homeland, who think in terms of nation-states working together rather than a European empire, end quote. Now, we've talked about Hungary before. Um, we've talked about them having, kind of pioneering the demographic recovery efforts, um, to uh, especially in Europe. And to which there are very few that have even bothered trying, like Russia and Sweden. Uh, and I believe Denmark as well. But, oh no, Iceland. I believe it's Iceland who is also trying to get people to have kids again. So, very few nations in Europe are actually trying to recover their demographies. 
And I believe it's probably because very few of them actually recognize the dangers of that. They're very bad demographies where they have fewer and fewer young people and more and more old people who have to be supported when they retire by those fewer and fewer young people. A killer for the economy and a killer for prosperity. But we have here Hungary, their prime minister, outlining a very different type of system than what Europe, the EU is, and they literally label the EU as a European empire. Uh, Hungary's prime minister is looking, in my opinion, to he's looking for a fundamentally different relationship between European countries, and he is pushing for greater self-reliance at the same time. Now, the difference in what the EU is now is where you have a semi-federal system that governs over other semi-federal systems as like a super-governmental organization. Because technically the member states are still like sovereign entities, technically, but you have this, this organization above them rather than having the member states cede rights to the federal government, similar to what uh, we had here in the United States when we went from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution. And we went from being a confederation to a federal republic. And that came with, certain, that came with states conceding certain rights to the federal government um, so that you had one government but it was over a number of other smaller governments. But in Europe, instead of having the nation-states lose sovereignty, they kept sovereignty and just plopped down the EU on top of it. Um, and that's kind of created problems, uh, specifically with determining who has the power, the EU, or the nation-state. Now, we talked about Poland just a minute ago and how their prime minister is asking their constitutional court to affirm that the constitution of Poland is above EU law. There's the debate right there. Viktor Orban here wants nation states to work together freely rather than having a European empire or a super governmental organization that is the EU telling countries what to do. Uh, and my opinion is this is kind of, this stems from the lack of clarity over who has the power. Are nation states in Europe sovereign, or does the EU take precedent? And you're seeing this debate play out, and it's not working well for the EU. Um, not looking well for the EU. I've outlined their perpetual secession crisis, and I'll continue to peddle that term. But with Hungary pushing for this, and Hungary pushing for greater self-reliance at the same time, my question is, will they be a great power in the future? I'm just saying, they have, they're gonna have the demographic advantage, un unquestionably. At, even if it's not like positive demographics, where they have more births, they have like 2.1 or more births per woman, which is replacement rate and above. Even if they don't have that, they're gonna have better demography than their neighbors and that's important because of the relative power of nations they're push they have the demographic advantage they're gonna have they're pushing for national sovereignty 
and they're going to have a relative power advantage over many of their neighbors just due to the demographics alone, let alone the economics that come with that from having a consumer market in Central Europe because uh, you have young people that consume. So this is currently setting Hungary up for major future success uh, on its own. But something I didn't think about until now was the implications of the steady disintegration of the EU on its member states. I mean, we talked about them leaving and getting a trade deal with the UK, and then that would incentivize more to leave and get a trade deal with the UK, and the UK would just get stronger and stronger as this went on. But what we didn't talk about was what comes after that because that's really only just like step one leave the country leave the eu and step two secure trade deal with britain that that's step one and two well what happens with step three no country lives in a vacuum and countries usually like to have stable relations with their neighbors their neighbors when they can help it and in the wake of what's looking like the EU's impending fall, new organizations are going to spring up in its place. Now, I really wasn't thinking about this for all that I, all that my talk of the perpetual secession crisis. I didn't think of what comes next, but this is kind of the obvious step. What happens next? You'll have new organizations that spring up in its place as countries associate with other countries of their choice. Now, this could be within Europe, it could be outside of Europe, but it'll be on their choice. And a quick recap of the EU situation, for those who don't know and don't understand what I mean. Um, well, actually, no, you can look at my previous episodes for the secession crisis, but a quick recap of the EU's situation right now. With that in mind, the secession crisis, France, Italy, Spain... And the Netherlands, surprisingly me, um, the Netherlands, are all hotbeds of secession right now. Britain has already left, and Greek politicians are past talking about holding the country's membership within the EU hostage. Now they're just openly defying the bloc's anti-British position. Um, then you have Poland and Hungary seeking completely different views with regards to the sovereignty of nations all right they're in complete opposition to the eu's authority over them and you're starting to see more and more of that the eu is like falling apart from every angle uh what we have yet to see what the romania and bulgaria are going to do but even tiny lithuania wasn't it even Yes, even Lithuania, they're moving forward on their own thing, which is to establish friendly relations with Taiwan, where the EU is trying to go for relations with China. And to those who know about the situation with China and Taiwan, those are, unless you're a superpower, those are mutually exclusive paths to go down. Um, thanks to the one China policy, those are mutually exclusive paths. So, you have member states going down one, and the EU going down another. The EU is dealing with secession in the West. 
and total opposition to their authority, defiance of their authority in the East and the Southeast, and extortion by the Greeks that may or may not get replicated by the other smaller states within the EU. Now, that being said, Greek secession, let's be honest, does it mean much to the EU right now? No. But fast forward, maybe a, a decade, Italy's left, France left, Spain is looking like it could go either way, the Netherlands is still there, but it makes it very clear that they're not footing the bill for lost revenue from the secession of France and Italy. And now, at that point, Greek secession means something. Now, at that point, it means something. And you're going to see extortion. That, that's, that, that's what I think is going to happen. That's the path that they appear to be heading towards. Which is going to dramatically swing the relationship of the power between Greece and the EU. And all of that said, I've asked you to bear with me. All of that said... It is very clear that Euroscepticism has become a very powerful force on the continent. And then, here comes Hungary, offering up their alternative to the EU. A free relationship between nation-states where the sovereignty of your nation is the sovereignty of your nation. And, well, do you want that or do you want the EU? You tell me. And countries with all this Euroscepticism going on, they're going to be like, you know what, maybe maybe we want some free association between nation states. Maybe we want some, maybe we want to reaffirm our sovereignty over our nation. And Hungary is going to be there as probably the leader of some new block, some new block, 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 some new organization of countries in Europe and that's probably going to be in direct opposition to whatever's left of the EU and my opinion is that Hungary may or may not win out in the long term because they could even set themselves up if they leave mind you they could set themselves up as a second destination for trade except they're on the continent rather than being an island so there's that but or maybe they sit it out and try to take over eu leadership and then they dissolve it i don't think they'll do that because it kind of antithetical to what they said they wanted to do but very interesting things are happening in central europe i have outlined my belief that there is plenty of room for a new central european major power and in the 1400s and early 1500s, that major power was Hungary, the Hungarian Empire. And it wasn't until the Ottomans stepped in and crapped all over them that Austria was able to steadily creep in and take their place. But now we could be seeing Hungary rise again. Ironically, at the same time that we're seeing Turkey rise again, but I think Turkey's going to push south rather than into the Balkans. There's just a lot to gain from the sound. Hungary is making major moves. And they have long-term advantages that are in their favor. 
which is kind of solidifying my belief that they will be a mid-century either great power or rising power. And it's going to be very interesting to watch, especially in the coming decade, well, in the decade ahead, where we're going to see these demographies of aging people start to smack people in the face, you know, once the mass retirement starts of the boomer generation, and you see the capital crunch, uh, and people have to start paying for other people's retirements because the retirement funds have been robbed, <laughs> you'll see massive either stagnation or decline in economies around the world. And the countries that have positive demographies are going to recover from this faster than the ones that don't. So there's that. I've out that is the relative power of nations. That'll be the time when Hungary will probably be on the move. Like, for real, for real. But, uh, that is something for the future. I'll be definitely be keeping my eyes on Hungary. And I guess I'll have to keep my eyes on Poland as well. Maybe they could do what Hungary doesn't do. They do have a bigger population. But my eyes, my bets are on Hungary right now. Now, we're going to move on to Libya. I said we were going to get to Libya. And here we go. A unity government in Libya has been proposed. And it is to consist of 27 members. Now, this proposal will be debated by the country's House of Representatives um, in a little bit. The two opposing sides in the civil war, that is the Libyan government, uh, which is backed by Turkey, and the rebel forces, which is General Hafdar, who've been fighting and are now physically separated by desert. Like you have like Hafdar in the east and southeast, and you have the Libyan government in the west of the country. You have that. So now you're trying to see, we're seeing that this attempt at pulling them back together to end the war. Now, militias in Tripoli have already refused, have already stated that they're going to refuse to adhere to the results of the upcoming December 24th elections, which are going to decide the new government. Uh, the official government. We're seeing this attempt at building an interim government. now, And the militias refusing to do that plays into my personal opinion, uh, which is that this is going to end in tragic failure. And when it does, foreign powers, namely Turkey, will send in peacekeepers, peacekeepers, quotation marks, quotation marks, to resolve the conflict. And Turkey backs the governments of Libya, not the rebel forces led by General Hafdar. And I believe that with all their dirty tricks that they've been using lately, like militants and mercenaries, and we could, be, we could see the first ally of Turkey's sphere of influence. We could be seeing Turkey get its first member within its sphere of influence. Azerbaijan was forcibly carved out of their sphere of influence by Russia, but now Turkey has nowhere to go but south. Now, the Libyan government is already very close to Turkey politically. Uh, so close, in fact, 
that they're having members of the Libyan army train in Turkey to use certain weapon systems like anti-tank, anti-vehicle, and anti-air, which is what they were doing uh, either a couple weeks back, actually. They were training in Turkey itself, and they finished their training, and they went back to Libya, so there's that. Now, I would imagine that America, even under the Biden administration, who is very focused on Syria right now, they will continue, it's nowhere, America, I mean, will continue, it's nowhere to be found streak, uh, like we saw with the Nagorno-Karabakh war that we started this little podcast talking about. And we, we saw that America was nowhere to be found in that conflict. And even more recently, we've seen with Iran seizing that South Korean oil tanker, and to which they sent a destroyer in response. South Korea, not, not the U.S. America was nowhere to be found on the subject. And it is my belief that America will continue to not be found on issues like these, especially as it focuses on well, the Middle East that we associate with the Middle East. Uh, so Arabia, Iraq, Iran, and Syria, as far as many in America are concerned, that is the Middle East. So as they're focused there and completely ignoring everything else that happens, we could we could see that this is leaving the door open. All right? you, you can see this as well as I can, that this is leaving the door wide open for regional players to get their footing in the era that is a friend of, in front of us. Now, I've kind of laid out this era in pieces and bits and my thoughts on what it's going to entail. Namely, we can look to the past for inspiration. Well, I talked about state-backed piracy in last episode. And apparently it was a really big problem back in the day. <laughs> but we this era of great power competitions or as history nerds would call it, normal, we could we could be seeing that as we enter back into that era of great power competitions and the rise and fall of empires, we could be seeing right now countries that make moves to set themselves up in good places and potentially even places good enough to where they can launch, they can use that as a launching pad to become an empire. And have their day in the sun. Now, empires rise and fall, but it's always more fun to be the rising on the rising side of that than to be on the falling side. And you, when everyone else is kind of leveled out right now, thanks to the 75 years of peace that America has instituted after the end of World War II, this peace that is steadily being undone, we could be seeing that countries who take advantage of openings like this now will have major advantages later on. Whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing is entirely relative to the people involved. I don't imagine Turkey is going to be opposed to having a country that is forever in its debt and has troops on their soil permanently and effectively becomes a tributary. I don't imagine the Turks are going to see that as a bad thing at all. And considering the Libyans are going to be probably very grateful that the Turks helped them quash 
the rebellion, which was backed by lots of other foreign powers, I don't imagine the Libyans are going to see Turkey there as being a problem either. And that's the consensual rise of empire, you know? Empires step in where they want it, and they gain more influence, they gain more power, and for the time being, everyone's okay with it. That's how the Ottomans rose the first time, largely, uh, particularly in the areas that they would conquer, and they would gain influence by letting people live largely live their own lives, and you would pay taxes to the new government. And that would be roughly it. They wouldn't, for the most part, they wouldn't force customs onto you. And that's how the Ottoman Empire stayed cohesive for so long, despite governing over such vastly different territories and vastly different peoples. We could be seeing the rise of that again. Um, we could be seeing Egypt step in if this all goes to, well, the if the stuff hits the fan, if you catch my drift, we could see Egypt step in. Um, but Egypt is probably going to be more preoccupied with Ethiopia right now. Um... Sudan is kind of politically unstable right now. There's lots of lots of tripwires, I should say, around the world that could very easily set off a domino effect within their own regions that allow other powers outside those regions to step in and assert power and influence. And right now it's looking like the cards are also the stars are also lining up for Turkey. <laughs> And we'll probably see a rekindling of the Russo-Ottoman rivalry. Uh, there are a bunch of rivalries that the French are starting up right now as well. But um, in this new era, which is probably going to be very interesting to watch from afar, luckily I am in the afar category, living in America, it'll be very interesting to see the rise of empires in real time. Because you don't, you don't really get that like you it's hard to find documentaries on the rise of an empire you can see a whole bunch on the fall of an empire but the rise of an empire is for some reason either rarely documented or i just can't find it i wish i could i want to but very 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 interesting things afoot uh Seemingly bad for humanitarian efforts, I'll say that much. Um, but depending on your country, it could be the best of times right now. Getting in while the getting's good. Before everyone else realizes, oh snap, the era of peace is over. Great power competitions are back. Because once that happens, every opening is going to be exploited by everyone. And it's going to be straight up chaos trying to keep track of the borders and border movements and who controls what. Uh, I mean, well, for me, that means job security. <laughs> but for anyone else trying to just keep track of what's going on, it's going to be a mess. At least until you start seeing empires start snowballing and they take over huge swaths of the globe, similar to the British and French, who technically still have their empires, really. The French are still in Africa. And even in a few other African nations that used to be ruled by the British, and the British still have the Commonwealth, who adhere to the crown. They respect the monarchy of Britain as their monarchy. 
So, did they really decolonize? Uh, who knows? Who knows? Uh, can suck anybody? But we'll really just have to see how this all plays out. And who wins and loses. Because those are going to have implications. Right now, it's looking like the EU is losing. And that's going to require a new balance of power in Europe. And traditionally, those balances of power within Europe come after a war. Um, and, well, I don't know who specifically will be fighting. Or if they'll... I just know that if the EU is gone and NATO effectively ceases to exist, there will be an attempt at forming a new balance of power in Europe. Uh, traditionally, the aggressor loses out on that proposition, um, so we'll have to we'll have to see. We'll really have to see, and who wins and loses in that new balance of power as well, because that'll have implications too. Um, but it's looking like Hungary is going to be a winner. It's looking like Russia's setting itself up to be a winner. Uh, France, well, Britain is already set up to be a major winner, even if it doesn't go colonizing everywhere else or reaffirming its colonies, its former colonies like Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. France is in a bit of political turmoil right now, with which I imagine they'll come back with extreme energy so all in all it's looking like we're heading towards a new era a very new era i've outlined this before and uh what, what more can i say you just gotta wait and see how this plays out and i'll kind of get into my closing thoughts and finish up on that in just a moment Alright, we're going to get into our closing thoughts and statements and kind of close out on my belief that we're entering into this new era of great power competitions and really want to emphasize, I really want to emphasize um, the implications of the winners and losers because we saw the big winner of, like, say, the Napoleonic Wars was Britain and they were kind of the big winner after the, what? The Thirty Years' War, the Seven Years' War, and the Napoleonic Wars, you just saw this string of them walking away largely unscathed and even having gained more in the process. And then they just snowballed to this point where they were the dominant power. And you had Pax Britannia from 1815 to 1914, when Britain was the undisputed number one power and it took the rise of America and Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union to truly dethrone the British even the French couldn't like salvage their position and the Russians were on the rise for most of the 19th century and you saw the great game between them and Britain uh in Afghanistan, because Britain had India as its colony at the time, you saw Britain having to deal with rising powers, and it wasn't until, say, what, 1850, with uh, 1852 to 4, where they had the war with Russia and the Crimea, although they did have France on their side. And you saw the balance of power there, where the French were 
fearing that they would be overtaken by the Russians, so they teamed up with the British to stop Russia. And then later on, you saw France get stomped on by Germany, well, Prussia, and then Prussia unified the German peoples and became the German Empire. And you saw Britain and France team up against them as well, and even add Russia to the fold. And you saw the balance of power change within Europe to match the changing dynamics of who the great powers were. And we'll see something like that around the world, although Europe is kind of the hotbed of this. So we'll have to, we'll really just be interested in watching them. And I kind of want to also emphasize um, conflict and the way it kind of pops up. Because we got a glimpse um, when we were talking about it last week with uh, Iran and South Korea. We got a glimpse of just how slippery the slope to war can be. Cause it's not like both of them went into that looking for a fight. In fact, both of them were very quick to resolve it. But it was very close to not being resolvable. I mean, because we see countries acting irrationally or in a desperate manner. Like, say, seizing someone else's oil tanker. And this causes other countries to act in, to respond in kind to those actions with irrational or desperate actions of their own. Oil and energy is a very, very sensitive point for many East Asian powers. China needs oil, Japan needs oil and natural gas, South Korea, Taiwan, they all need energy. And largely, it's petrochemical and hydrocarbon. They largely need oil and natural gas, but they can't produce it on their own. They don't have it. Uh, there's some in the South China Sea, which is why you see them getting involved and why China's so aggressive. Part of why China is so aggressive there, they need the energy. So when you have a country acting irrationally, like Iran, and seizing south korea's oil tanker you get south korea acting in desperation because they know what that means it means the lights go off and they lose their way of life they sent a destroyer the and thus we almost saw a the first persian korean war um now persia being iran iran was acting irrationally uh, to kind of assert itself in the region. And, well, they, they're getting hurt by the sanctions. They they can't sell their oil as much as they used to. So now they're just taking it out on the countries around them, saying, well, if we can't sell our oil, you can't either. Well, take your tanker. Forget you. But that almost invoked a response that could have led to war. Well, it did invoke a response, but it were happy... And lucky that it didn't go to war. And that's just kind of like a microcosm of how wars can happen in like the blink of an eye. It's the conflict of interest between nations. Where one country wants something and either another country also wants that thing but there's not enough to go around. And they fight. Or maybe one country does something um, in response to what 
if country A does something in response to what country B did over here, or maybe it wants to assert its presence over country B. But in doing that, they have unintentionally affected country C, and country C goes to war because, well, the, you threaten their lifeline, you threaten their energy, or you threaten their trade, and they're dependent on either energy or trade, and, well, they can't have you doing that. They go to war to try to put you down so you can't threaten them anymore. The slippery slope to war, that's, that's how slippery it is. And we forget that in this abnormal era that we live in, just how quick you could have conflict, just how quick peace can just disappear. I mean, we saw, and it's surprising that we forget and how easy it is to not see it, especially with what you see in eastern Ukraine. Russia just popped up one day, <laughs> snatched the Crimea and spawned an insurrection in eastern Ukraine. Now, they were probably building that up for a while, but that's what happened. There is a literal war in Europe right now. We saw the war with the fall of Yugoslavia and the war between Serbia and Kosovo. There was a war in Europe. And we like to think of certain places around the world as being largely peaceful. But now we're seeing naval buildups in the South China Sea. We're seeing Iran seizing oil tankers. We're seeing Turkey send mercenaries every time there's an insurrection or a conflict in their neighborhood. And we're probably going to see more violence in Libya when uh, shit hits the van. So, conflict is... I, I, I should say conflict isn't as far away or as implausible as we would hope for or as we would like to believe... And we can see it when we look closely, but when we don't, it just creeps up on you. And suddenly it's there. And now you're fighting. And who wins matters. Especially if we're moving into this era where the winner expands into empire. They expand their influence. You lose and you lose access to trade. You lose access to what allowed you to exist. You become a tributary or... You become an, or worse, you become an imperial subject. And now you have to adhere to the laws of that other guy. You have to adhere to their customs now. You have to give taxes to him. Now, for some people that's good. For many people it ends up being the bad. But we can, we can look to the past for inspiration and kind of clarity on what we may see in the future. But... I'll leave that there, because that is all I have. That is it for today. Now, I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. It's changing faster and faster, it seems. Every now and then it slows down, then it picks up again. But we can, we can confirm that it's changing. But we can also confirm that we are going to have fun watching that change together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus. <laughs>